Section 22 of Heart, A Schoolboy's Journal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Lewis, Houston, Texas. Heart, A Schoolboy's Journal, by Edmondo Diamichis. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. June, Garibaldi. June 3rd. Tomorrow's National Festival Day. Today is a day of national mourning. Garibaldi died last night. Do you know who he is? He is the man who freed ten millions of Italians from the tyranny of the Bourbons. He died at the age of seventy-five. He was born at Nice, the son of a ship captain. At eight years of age, he saved a woman's life. At thirteen, he dragged into safety a boatload of his companions who were shipwrecked. At twenty-seven, he saved a drowning youth at Marcel's. At forty-one, he saved a ship from burning on the ocean. He fought for ten years in America for the liberty of the foreign people. He fought in three wars against the Austrians for the liberation of Lombardy and Trentino. He defended Rome from the French in 1849. He liberated Naples and Palomar in 1860. He fought again for Rome in 1867 and fought against the Germans in defense of France in 1870. He was possessed of a flame of heroism and the genius of war. He was engaged in 40 battles and won 37 of them. When he was not fighting, he was working for his living, or he shut himself up in a solitary island and tilled the soil. He was a teacher, sailor, workman, trader, soldier, general, dictator. He was simple, great, and good. He hated all oppressors. He loved all people. He protected all the weak. He had no other aspiration than good. He refused honors. He scorned death. He adored Italy. When he uttered his war cry, legions of valiant men hastened to him from all quarters. Gentlemen left their palaces, workmen their ships, youth their schools to go and fight in the sunshine of his glory. In time of war he wore a red shirt. He was a blonde, strong, and handsome. On the field of battle he was a thunderbolt. In his affections he was a child. In affliction he was a saint. Thousands of Italians have died for their country, happy, if when dying they saw him pass, victorious in the distance. Thousands would have allowed themselves to be killed for him. Millions have blessed and will bless him. He is dead. The whole world mourns him. You do not appreciate him now, but you will read of his deeds. You will constantly hear him spoken of in the course of your life, and gradually as you grow up, his image will grow before you. When you become a man, you will behold him as a giant. And when you are no longer in the world, when your son's sons and those who shall be born of them are no longer among the living, the generations will still behold on high his luminous head as a redeemer of the people crowned by the names of his victories, as with a circlet of stars, and the brow and soul of every Italian will beam when he utters his name, your father. The Army, Sunday 9th, the National Festival Day, postponed for a week on account of the death of Giabrade. We have been to the Piazza Castello to see the review of soldiers who filed before the Commandant of the Army Corps between two long lines of people, as they marched past, too, the sound of the trumpets and the bands, my father pointed out to me the course and the glories of the banners.
First, the pupils of the academy, those who will become officers in the engineers and the artillery, about three hundred in number, dressed in black, passed with the bold, easy elegance of students and soldiers. After them defiled the infantry, the brigade of Osta, which fought at Giotto and San Martino, and the Bergamo brigade, which fought at Castelfell Dargo, four regiments of them, company after company, thousands of red aguilettes, which seemed like so many double and very long garlands of blood-colored flowers, extended and shaken from the two ends and borne across the crowd. After the infantry, the soldiers of the mining corps advance, the working men of war, with their plumes of black horse-tails and their crimson bands, and while these were passing, we beheld advancing behind them hundreds of long straight plumes, which rose above the heads of the spectators. They were the alpine troops, the defender of the portals of Italy, all tall, rosy, and starwit, with hats of Galabrian fashion, and labels of a beautiful bright green, the color of the grass on their native mountains. The mountaineers were still marching past when a stir ran through the crowd, and the Bursagali, the old 12th Battalion, the first to enter Rome through the breach of the Porta Pia, bronzed, alert, brisk, with fluttering plumes, passed like a wave in a sea of black, making the piazza ring with the shrill blast of their trumpets, which seemed like shouts of joy, but their trumpeting was drowned by a broken and hollow rumble, which announced the field artillery, and the latter passed in triumph, seated on their lofty cassons, drawn by three hundred teams of fierce horses, whose fine soldiers with yellow lacing, and their long cannons of brass and steel, gleaming on the light carriages, as they jolted and resounded, and made the earth tremble. Then came the mountain artillery, slowly, gravely, fine in its heavy, solid way, with its large soldiers and its powerful mules. That mountain artillery, which carries dismay and death wherever man can set his foot. And last of all, the fine regiment of the Gionosi cavalry, which had wheeled down like a whirlwind on ten fields of battle, from Santa Lucia to Villafranca, passed at the gallop, their helmets glittering in the sun, their lances erect, their pinions floating in the air, sparkling with gold and silver, filling the air with jingling and neighing. How beautiful it is, I exclaimed. My father almost reproved me for the words and said, You are not to regard the army as a fine show. All these young men, so full of strength and hope, may be called upon any day to defend our country, and fall in a few hours, crushed to fragments by bullets and grape-shot. Every time that you hear the cry at a feast, Hooray for the army! Hooray for Italy! Picture to yourself behind the regiments which are passing a plain covered with corpse and red with blood, and then the greeting to the army will proceed from the very depths of your heart, and the image of Italy will appear to you more severe and grand. Italy, Tuesday, 13th. Salute your country on days of festivals, thus. Italy, my country, dear and noble land, where my father and my mother were born, and where they will be buried, where I hope to live and die, where my children will grow up and die. Beautiful Italy, great and glorious for many centuries, united and free for the past few years, who has scattered so great a light of intellect divine over the world, and for whom so many valiant men have died on the battlefield, 
and so many heroes on the gallows, August, mother of three hundred cities, and thirty millions of sons, I, a child, who do not understand you as yet, and who do not know you in your entirety, venerate and love you with all my soul, and am proud of having been born of you, and of calling myself your son. I love your splendid seas and sublime mountains. I love your solemn monuments and immortal memories. I love your glory and beauty. I love and venerate the whole of you as much as that beloved portion where I, for the first time, beheld the light and heard your name. I love the whole of you with a single affection and with equal gratitude. Turin the valiant, Gilda the superior, Bologna the learned, Venice the enchanting, Milan the mighty, I love with the reverence of a son, gentle Florence, and terrible Palamore, immense and beautiful Naples, marvelous and eternal Rome. I love you, my sacred country, and I swear that I will love all your sons like brothers, and that I will always honor in my heart your great men living and dead, and that I will be industrious and honest citizen, constantly intent on ennobling myself in order to render myself worthy of you, to assist with my small powers in causing misery, ignorance, injustice, crime, to disappear one day from your face, so that you may live and grow quietly in the majesty of your right and of your strength. I swear that I will serve you, as it may be granted to me, with my mind, with my arm, with my heart, humbly, ardently, and that if the day should dawn on which I should be called on to give my blood and my life for you, I will give my blood and I will die, crying your holy name to heaven, and wafting my last kiss to your blessed banner, your father. 32 degrees, Friday, 16th. During the five days which have passed since the national festival, the heat has increased by three degrees. We are in full summer now and begin to feel weary, all have lost their fine rosy color of springtime. Necks and legs are growing thin. Heads droop and eyes close. Poor Nelly, who suffers much from the heat, has turned the color of wax in the face. He sometimes falls into a heavy sleep with his head on his copybook. But Goron is always watchful and places an open book in front of him so that the master cannot see him. Cross he rests his red head against the bench in a certain way so that it looks as though it had been taken from his body and placed there separately. Nobis complains that there are too many of us and that we spoil the air. Ah, what an effort it costs now to study. I gaze through the window at those beautiful trees, which cast so deep a shade, where I should be so glad to run, and sadness and impatience overwhelm me at being obliged to go and shut myself up among the benches. But then I take courage at the sight of my kind mother, who is always watching me when I return from school to see whether I am not pale, and at every page of my work she says to me, Do you still feel well? And every morning at six, when she wakes me for my lesson, Courage, there are only so many days more, then you will be free and will get rested. You will go to the shade of country lanes. Yes, she is perfectly right to remind me of the boys who are working in the field. In the full heat of the sun, among the white sands of the river, which blind and scorch them, and those in the glass factories, who stand all day long, motionless, with head bent over a flame of glass, 
and all of them rise earlier than we do, and have no vacations. Courage, then. Even in this respect, Durasi is at the head of all, for he suffers neither from heat nor drowsiness. He is always wide awake and cheery, with his golden curls as he was in the winter, and he studies without effort, and keeps all about him alert, as though he freshened the air with his voice. There are two others also who are always awake and attentive, stubborn Stardy, who pinches his face to keep him going to sleep, and the more weary and heated he is, the more he sets his teeth, and he opens his eyes so wide that it seems as though he wanted to eat the teacher, and that traitor of Garofi, who is worldly absorbed in manufacturing fans out of red paper, decorated with little figures from matchboxes, which he sells at two centestimes apiece. But the bravest of all is Karate. Poor Karate. He gets up at five o'clock to help his father carry wood. At eleven in school he can no longer keep his eyes open, and his head droops on his breast. Nevertheless, he shakes himself, punches himself on the back of the neck, asks permission to go out and wash his face, and makes his neighbors shake and pinch him. But this morning he could not resist and fell into a heavy sleep. The teacher called him loudly. Karate, he did not hear. The teacher, irritated, repeated, Karate. Then the son of his, the charcoal man who lives next to him at home rose and said, He worked from five till seven carrying wood. The teacher allowed him to sleep on and continued with the lesson for half an hour. Then he went to Garetti's seat and awakened him very, very gently by blowing in his face. On seeing the master in front of him, he startled back in alarm, but the master shook his head in his hands and said, as he stroked his hair, I am not reproving you, my son. Your sleep is not at all that of laziness. It is the sleep of fatigue. My father. Saturday, 17th. Surely neither your comrade Coretti or Garoni would ever have answered their father as you have answered yours this afternoon in Norico. How is that possible? You must promise me solemnly that this shall never happen again, so long as I live. Every time that an imperative reply flies to your lips at reproof from your father, think of this day which will surely come when he will call to you to his bedside to tell you, In Norico I am about to leave you. Oh, my son, when you hear his voice for the last time, and for a long time, while afterwards, when you weep alone in his deserted room, in the midst of those books which he will never open again, then on recalling that you have at times been wanting in respect of him, you too will ask yourself, how is it possible? Then you will understand that he has always been your best friend, that when he was constrained to punish you, it caused him more suffering than it did you, and that he never made you weep except for the sake of doing you good. And then you will repent, and you will kiss with tears that desk at which he worked so much, at which he wore out his life for his children. You do not understand now. He hides from you all of himself, except his kindness and his love. You do not know that he is sometimes so broken down with toil that he thinks he has only a few more days to live, and that at such moments he talks only of you. He has in his heart no more trouble than that of leaving you poor and without protection. And how often, when meditating on this, does he enter your room while you are asleep and stand there, lamp in hand, gazing at you, and then he makes an effort, and weary and sad as he is, 
he returns to his labor. Neither do you know that he often seeks you and remains with you because he has a bitterness in his heart, sorrows which attack all men in the world, and he seeks you as a friend to obtain consolation himself and forgetfulness, and he feels the need of taking refuge in your affection to recover his serenity and his courage. Think then what must be his sorrow when instead of finding in your affection he finds coldness and disrespect. Never again stain yourself with this horrible ingratitude. Reflect that you were as good as a saint. You could never repay him sufficiently for what he has done and for what he is constantly doing for you. And reflect also we cannot count on life. A misfortune might remove your father while you are still a boy. In two years and three months tomorrow. Ah, my poor Enrico, when you see all about you changing, how empty, how desolate the house will appear, with your poor mother clothed in black. Go, my son, go to your father. He is in his room at work. Go on, tiptoe, that he may not hear you enter. Go and lay your forehead on his knees and ask him to pardon and to bless you. Your mother. In the country. Monday, 19th. My good father forgave me on this occasion also, and allowed me to go on an expedition to the country, which had been arranged on Wednesday with the father of Corradi, the wood peddler. We were all in need of a mouthful of mountain air. It was a holiday. We met at two o'clock in the place of the statue. Dorazi, Garoni, Giroffi, Procasi, Corradi, father and son, and I with our provisions of fruit, sausages, and hard-boiled eggs. We also carried leather bottles and tin cups. Goroni carried a gourd filled with white wine, Garati, his father's soldier, his canteen full of red wine, and little Procasi in the blacksmith's blouse, held under his arm a two-kilogram loaf. We went in the omnibus as far as the Grand Mandri di Dio, and then off as briskly as possible to the hills, how green, how shady, how fresh it was. We rolled over and over in the grass. We dipped our faces in the rivulets. We leaped the hedges. The elder Gorati followed us at a distance with his jacket thrown over his shoulders, smoking his clay pipe, and from time to time threatening us with his hand to prevent our tearing hose in our trousers. Perclasi whistled. I have never heard him whistle before. The younger Gorati did the same as he went along. That little fellow can make anything with his jackknife, mill wheels, forks, squirts. He insisted on carrying the other boy's things, and he was loaded down until he was dripping with perspiration. But he was still as nimble as a goat. Dorasi halted every moment to tell us the names of the plants and insects. I don't see how he manages to know so many things. Garani nibbled at his bread in silence, but he no longer attacks it with the cheery bites of old poor Garani now that he has lost his mother. But he is always as good as bread himself. When one of us went back for a running start to leap a ditch, he ran to the other side and held out his hands to us. And since Percasi is afraid of cows, having been tossed by one when a child, Godoni places himself in front of him every time that we pass any. We mounted up to San Margaretia and then went down the decline by leaps, rolls, and slides. Prakasi stumbled into a thorn bush and tore a hole in his blouse and stood there shamefacedly with the strip dangling. But Garafi, who always has pins in his jacket, fixed it so that it was not to be seen. 
while the others kept saying, Excuse me, excuse me, and then he set off to run once more. Garoffi did not waste his time on the way. He picked salad herbs and snails and put every stone that glistened the least bit in his packet, supposing that there was gold and silver in it. And on we went, running, rolling, and climbing through the shade and in the sun, up and down through all the lanes and crossroads, until we arrived tumbled and breathless at the crest of a hill, where we seated ourselves to take our lunch on the grass. We could see an immense plain in all the blue Alps with their white summits. We were almost dying of hunger. The bread seemed to be melting. The elder Karate handed us our portions of sausage on gourd leaves, and then we all began to talk at once about the teachers, the comrades who had not been able to come, and the examinations. Percasi was rather ashamed to eat, and Garoni thrust the last bits of his share into his mouth by force. Karate was seated next to his father with his legs crossed. They seemed more like two brothers than father and son. When seen thus together, both rosy and smiling with those white teeth of theirs, the father drank with zest, emptying the bottles and the cups which we left half-finished, and said, Wine hurts you boys who are studying. It is the wood-sellers who need it. Then he grasped his son by the nose and shook him, remarking, Boys, you must love this fellow, for he is a flower of a man of honor, I tell you so myself. And then we all laughed, except Garoni, and he went on as he drank. It is a shame, he? Now you are all good friends together, and in a few years, who knows, Enrico and Derasi will be lawyers or professors, or I don't know what, and the other four of you will be in shops or at a trade, and the deuce knows where, and then, good night, comrades. Nonsense, rejoined Derasi, for me, Goroni will always be Goroni, Pocassi will always be Pocassi, and the same with all the others. Were I to become the emperor of Russia, where they are, there I shall go also. Bless you, exclaimed the elder Karate, raising his flask. That's the way to talk, by heavens. Touch your glass here. Hooray for brave comrades, and hooray for school, which makes one family of you, of those who have and those who have not. We all clinked his flask with the skins and the cups, and drank for the last time. Hooray for the fourth of the forty-ninth, he cried, as he rose to his feet, and swallowed the last drop. And if you have to do with squadrons, too, see that you stand firm, like us old ones, my lads. It was already late. We descended, running and singing, and walking long distances, all arm in arm. And we arrived at the Po as twilight fell, and thousands of fireflies were flittering about. And we only parted in the Piazza dello Statuto after having agreed to meet there on the following Sunday, and go to Victor Edmanuel to see the distribution of prizes to the graduates of the evening schools. End of section 22. Recording by Kristen Lewis, Houston, Texas.